You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I'm opposed to people killing each other, period. No one has a right to kill another human being and to use violence. Anti-death penalty advocate, Sister Helen Prejean. Today of Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. How did a Roman Catholic nun wind up befriending a convicted killer on death row? Well, the answer to that deceptively simple question is at the heart of Sister Helen Prejean's best-selling 1993 book, Dead Man Walking. And even if you haven't read the book, you've probably seen the movie based on the book, starring Susan Sarandon as Sister Helen Prejean, and also starring Sean Penn. Her prison ministry that started over four decades ago has inspired Sister Prejean to be an outspoken and powerful anti-death penalty advocate. And indeed, her books have made millions of people reconsider their own views on capital punishment. I first met her shortly after Dead Man Walking was published. So here now, from 1993, my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. Actually, executions are very secret rituals. In Louisiana, they're conducted just after midnight, deep in the prison. People really don't see what's going on. And I walked out of the execution chamber the night of April the 5th, 1984, after watching Patrick Sonier be put to death in the electric chair. And I can remember formulating to myself, if people could really see this, though there's high rhetoric for, for the death penalty, if people could be brought close up, the American people would not support the death penalty. And that is what really spurred this book. The book's written not as a polemic against the death penalty, but it's stories where I take people with me on the journey that I go on, first among the poor in an inner-city housing project in New Orleans, and then getting the name of someone to write on death row as a, as a pen pal, and it unfolded for me. I never dreamed I would watch him die. Uh, and then taking people with me over to the murder victims' families as well and telling that story. It did occur to me in reading this that I suspect there are a lot of folks who don't want to know a great deal about the people who are on death row because we want to think of them as people on death row. We don't want to know them as real human beings with emotions and feelings, people who are capable of corresponding with a nun. Yeah, right. Uh, actually, you know, I had my own stereotypical version of what this person probably was like. I mean, I grew in my knowledge of him as a human being. You know, and he I don't condone, of course, the crime that he did. He and his brother, Patrick Sonier, and his brother were, were had done a terrible crime at killing, abducting, uh, a teenage couple raping the girl and killing them. Um, and when you even read about things like that, you know, your blood boils and the outrage that you feel like, God, no human being should be able to do that to another human being. And when I knew what his crime was, it was like I went, what is this guy? What must he be like? And I had an image of like a Charles Manson kind of person. Then you, he writes letters I go to see him, and I see that he's a human being. And that's probably one of the underlying themes of the book. And you're right. As long as people are removed like this and you can just... It's easy to kill statistics or the criminal, the monster. 
but to kill a human being is is another story. And that's one of probably the subtext in the book, too, is I tell the story of everybody from governor, head of Department of Corrections, warden, guards on what's called the strap-down team in Louisiana State Penitentiary, whose job is to get the person to the chair, strap them in so that they can be killed. It's a very different story from people who are really close up to it. Also, when you speak of high rhetoric, uh, talk about the high rhetoric of people who are demanding public executions televised in prime time as a deterrent. Boy, that would keep people from committing murder, wouldn't it? Well, you know, actually, my own, the way I weigh in on this one is, I believe that as long as it is a secret ritual, we're going to keep executions a lot longer. This was a point made by Albert Camus, uh, the the French author, philosopher, uh, existentialist in France in 1957. He made the same point. As long as the state or government can keep their killing secret, uh, there will not be a public outcry against them. And it's an interesting kind of thing to be caught in. I personally believe to the extent that we can let people see what's going on and they can see it with their own eyes, they will reject the death penalty. As long as we keep it hidden, it's going to be easy to accept. I talked with a Russian publisher a few months ago who said even to this day in Russia, not only don't they know who's executed and when, they don't know how. Really? They're, wow. not, they're not even told how it's done. They, he says they think it's a bullet behind the ear, but they're not sure. Well, see, and in our, here, we keep trying to sanitize it more and more, make it more and more antiseptic. 21 states now have lethal injection. Louisiana, this book is about two electrocutions, but Louisiana now has lethal injection. And... Uh, I saw the the death chamber, and they have a gurney. They pull a sheet up over the person. They have a white hospital curtain around it. They're trying to make it look like a hospital. I mean, they probably use alcohol on the person's arm before they insert the IV, I mean, to prevent infection. All this is like, we're not killing you. We're putting you to sleep. And one of the one of the things about the death penalty that we have to face, I mean, we do have an Eighth Amendment that for that says we do not practice cruelty or torture against human beings. Now, we can readily accept if you put electric shocks to somebody's body, that's torture. But if you put electric shock to kill them, we say that's not torture or cruelty. If we brainwash someone, we say that's mental torture. But a person preparing to die, anticipating dying, once a person's condemned to death, you have a conscious human being And the dying, by the time most men get to death row, like in Louisiana, 21 have been executed, what they say is, I am so tired because they prepare to die. Their family goes through it with them. They might get into the death house, then eight hours away from execution. They get a stay. They go back and begin the process again. We have to have a blind spot somewhere in our hearts or souls to say this is not the torture of a human being. Well, and also, as as, uh, as you point out in your book, if this were a perfect parallel, an eye for an eye, life for life, then the victims of all these killers should have been locked in a cell and told months ahead of time of the date at which they were going to be killed and kept there to stew about it all those months and then brought out and, as you said, maybe sat down on the chair and then taken back again and come back in order to make it a perfect parallel. Yes, that's right. It would have to be that. And, but, and then it raises the question, where else in the criminal process, justice process, do we let the crime that a person does determine the punishment, where we imitate the crime, people guilty of rape. We don't put them in prisons and have these little rape squads that go around and rape them. That's what you did to somebody, so we're going to do that to you. But yet we apply that principle in the death penalty. Um, 
and we're better than that. I mean, one of the things a book does, it tells stories is what the book does. It tells people the story as it unfolds. Um, but it also gives people a lot of good, hard information that they don't know about the death penalty. Like former Thurgood Marshall um, said one time, there's public opinion about the death penalty, but it's not informed public opinion. One of the things, for example, that people need to know is as recently as six years ago, the average time served of a life sentence for murder was about 8.9 years. Now, 30 state legislatures in 30 states have tightened up life without parole statutes for first-degree murderers, your most serious murderers. People are not walking out of prison after a few short years, and the public does have a right. We all do have a right to be protected. California, for example, tightened up its life without parole uh, sentence statute for first-degree murder 25 years ago, and no one has walked out of there that's been sentenced under the new code. After this short break, Sister Helen Prejean on the unexpected side of her work. Now back to my 1993 conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. But aside from the moral and ethical considerations now, now you're into financial. Let's, let's be cold and calculated about it. Do I want to, as a taxpayer, when, when, my, when my job is being threatened every day by layoffs, do I want to spend the however many thousands of dollars a year it takes to house someone who's never going to be rehabilitated, who's never going to be let back out into society, who maybe has killed one person or maybe he's killed a hundred? Why not just give him the injection or put him in the chair and be done with it? Yeah. One of the th- this was one of the most shocking things I found out about, is about the cost of the death penalty. The, probably the, the greatest misconception people have is that it's less costly to imprison a person or more costly to imprison them than to kill them. Everything in the death penalty process costs more money. Um, the DA has to have more of an airtight case, has to send more investigators to get the evidence, calls in more expert witnesses, takes longer to get a jury in a death penalty trial because they have to eliminate from the jury anyone who's against the death penalty. The process takes longer. These juries have to be sequestered in a motel. All that's more costly. Then you have two trials for a death penalty case. You have guilt or innocence. Then you have another whole trial for sentencing to determine the sentence. Then there's a mandatory review by the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court justices in Florida were objecting because such a disproportionate amount of their time has to go to review all these death penalty cases, which are very complex uh, and which must be looked at in all their nuances and so forth. And so... Take Louisiana. We're one of the four southern states responsible for 70% of all U.S. executions. Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, and Florida do 70% of the executions. The South has always been, you know, more execution prone than the rest of the United States. Texas just did their fiscal analysis. It cost them $2.3 million for each one of the executions. They've executed more than anybody. Their murder rate is still the highest in the country in their big cities. Their poverty rate continues. And so you just have to – it is a moral question. Cost, too, is a moral question of how are we going to use our resources. Uh, In Louisiana, where we've done so many executions, uh, just two weeks ago, our policemen – they called it the blue flu. They were staying home sick because they're underpaid. They weren't weren't being given overtime. So you got to ask the question, if you really want to combat crime – 
how many laid-off police officers is one execution worth? Especially when you see how selective it is. Out of 23,000 homicides in this country every year, we select about 1%, 230 people for the death penalty. It's always a random selection. It'll never be across the board because race feeds it. I was just going to say, it's not entirely random by any means. Yeah, right. Actually, there's a, a very clear profile as to who goes to death row. Always poor people. And when you see what kind of defense they get, you understand why poor people go. Louisiana, for example, the only requirement for someone taking a capital case that a judge can appoint is that they have five years legal experience. They may never have opened up a criminal law book. It may be in mineral or oil or real estate, and yet they can be appointed to defend someone's life in Louisiana. And it's true of other southern states, too, the requirements for the defense attorneys. So then it's no secret that people, you know, uh, go to death row because of the kind of defense they get. And then race is the other thing. People say, yeah, but look, you look at all the people on death row, you see we got blacks and whites, almost 50 percent, right? But who did they kill? That's where race really – I was just reading in USA Today today. They were just saying how the disproportionate use of, of, of drug convictions, that black people are arrested four times as much for drugs as white people, even though it can be shown that, it, that equally blacks and whites use drugs and distribute drugs. And it's really true in the death penalty because DAs prosecute vigorously when a white person has been killed and not one – 17th as vigorously when a black person has been killed. And so race fuels the death penalty, too. The race of the victim. There's more outrage when white people are killed than when black people are killed. You've got some very troubling stories in here as well from the families of the murder victims, uh, people who have been left out in the cold, if not accused of the murder themselves. That was a very surprising thing to me. You know, first I got involved with the death row inmates and began to accompany them, and then I got involved with murder victims' families. The second half of the book tells a lot of those stories. Went to parents of murdered children meetings, these kind of support groups for victims' families, and they told stories. First of all, an insensitivity in in the whole criminal justice system. One man told the story of, in Louisiana, the sheriff's, offices are supposed to administer uh, something that the Louisiana legislature passed called victims' compensation. And so anyone who's experienced violence can receive this fund for medical expenses, counseling, unemployment. So these people had gone to the sheriff's office to apply for those funds. And this deputy rifled through a drawer. He said, victims' funds. I don't know about no victims' funds. Why don't y'all write to Ann Lander? She helps people. Just insensitivity because the, in the criminal justice system, there's a prosecutorial bent toward the DA's office and the people who work in that, not to help victims. Now, that's beginning to change in some places in the country. Genesee County in New York has an outstanding victims' assistance program. But I was amazed at the kind of stories they told of the DA's not calling them back, not giving them information, lack of sensitivity to them and where they were, because actually the DA's in the adversarial system of the of the courts just is going after the defendant. It's the state versus the criminal, and the victims are out of the loop in the process. As, as a member of a religious order, how do you reconcile your need to minister to the victims' families with the need to minister to the people who are on death row for inflicting death on the victim? 
Well, because I'm opposed to someone's execution, I'm opposed to people killing each other, period. No one has a right to kill another human being and to use violence. That applies to the people that committed the murder against the victims' families. Everybody's got a right, or we should work in our society toward a kind of compassion and loving presence toward anyone in need and anyone who's suffering. So because I'm opposed to people being executed who have, who have murdered other people, because I believe that human beings transcend the worst thing they ever did in their life. That doesn't mean that I'm for letting them out on the streets in a few years and not saying we don't need to protect ourselves against them. And it doesn't mean that I'm against victims' families. There's social pressure, I notice, even in the victims' families. You know, here you've suffered this terrible loss in your life of your child or someone you love. Then you have your society, your culture says, well, we would like to exact the ultimate punishment on this person who has done this terrible crime, which they have. Um, do you agree with this? And, and, of course, if you say, no, I don't want them to get the death penalty, it looks like you didn't love your child. It looks like you. I know of one murder victim's family, this woman, uh, Marietta Yeager, who was on a talk show. And she, her 12-year-old daughter was terribly abducted and killed, a mother's worst nightmare. And Marietta Yeager is not for the death penalty of the, of the person who had killed her daughter. And on this talk show, another victim's family said to her afterwards, it's a shame you don't love your daughter the way we love ours. Because it's just easy to make that kind of formulaic kind of syllogism of if you love them the most, you want the maximum penalty, you want them to die. And I find there's social pressure in that on people. Sister Helen Prejean celebrated her 84th birthday last week, and she's still working to eliminate capital punishment. And you can get Helen Prejean's book, Dead Man Walking, by following the link in our show notes or at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, don't miss my 1994 interview with the famed defense attorney, William Kunstler. Pickets around my house, bullets fly through the downstairs window, bullets in the mail, hate messages on my answering machine. If you're going to do these kind of cases, you've got to anticipate and expect that and hope to live through it. And also, my 1994 interview with the woman who was Ted Bundy's last lawyer before he was executed, attorney Polly Nelson. It's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving, but true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving. And Ted seemed the least deserving of all. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And would you please subscribe today if you haven't already? There's a link in our show notes. Thank you so much. Now, if you're like me and you grew up with the Flintstones and the Jetsons and Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear, you will not want to miss our next episode of Now I've Heard Everything, my 1994 interview with one half of the Hanna-Barbera team, Joseph Barbera. When I saw the show, it was called The Flagstones. Then we got a letter saying we couldn't use that word because of another cartoon strip, so we changed it to Gladstone. But then we can't use the Gladstones for some reason, and we ended up with the Flintstones. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.